0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. One of the yoga teachers that I uh, met through this process said to me, you know, I was really, really struggling finding balance, finding finding." my footing in a pose and kept falling over and i was like i can't do this i can't do this and then, then the the teacher looked at me he goes well you are doing it balance is ever changing when you're falling over you're finding a new balance and that is teaching you as much as when you are finding your footing in the pose successfully like that's those are both forms of balance and Neither is a better form than the other. Each one is providing you with information. on, Even on a cellular and a neurological level, your body is learning and your mind is understanding something because of those shifts.
0: Remember, folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Emily, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've been very, very much looking forward to this, and I'm so honored to be here. I know we've had uh, a couple of uh, reschedulings, and I'm, I'm very, very excited that we're finally making this happen.
2: Likewise. And you have good reasons for rescheduling, which we'll actually get into. Um, you're one of a long line of guests who came to us from our mutual friend, Sarah Peck, uh, who has sent us nothing but amazing people. So no pressure at all. Um,
1: <laughs> well, shit. I mean, can I swear? <laughs> yeah. <exactly>. Okay, cool. <laughs>
2: um, so I would like to start asking you, where in the world did you grow up? And what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: I, I, grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I grew up going to Catholic school, born and raised in Phoenix, hate Phoenix, not a fan of the intense heat. And as soon as I could, I went to, when I, I went to college my first year in uh, small town, Ohio, where I met, uh, the incredible beloved Sarah Peck. And, uh, we were, we were, uh, weight training partners on the swim team. And she became a mentor and really a, a uh, you know, masthead for me in terms of leadership, creativity and perseverance. Um, I, through a number of different circumstances, ended up leaving that college after my freshman year and moving a little bit closer to home, spent the rest of my college years in Southern California And, um, after graduating college, I had a a college boyfriend who was living in New York City, showed back up into my life after a couple of years of not uh, communicating with each other. We had fallen out of touch, said, Hey, I'm living in New York. I think we could get back together. Come move out here with me. And I had never been to New York. I'd never been to the East coast. So I said, okay, went online, bought a one way ticket packed up my dorm, shipped everything to an apartment I found on Craigslist, (laughs) found a job. And a couple weeks later I was in the air and I moved to New York at 22, knowing one person who was the boyfriend. And, um, and I've lived here for now for 12 years. So it's uh, been a, a pretty crazy trajectory. So now yeah. I, the boyfriend is no longer in the picture, but I'm now you know happily married to my husband Christian, who I met in New York, also a California transplant, and we lived in the city for ten years. Now uh, in Westchester, where we have a three year old son, two cats, and um, our other child, we like to call my metastatic cancer diagnosis, <laughs>
2: <laughs> which we'll we'll talk about. Yeah. <laughs> well- like I wonder what uh, you took from each of the various places that you have spent time in, uh, in the process of growing up and how those have shaped uh, who you've become and what you've chosen to do.
1: Well, living in Phoenix made me realize that that was not what I wanted. And i i I don't say that to disparage my childhood, but I say that because I didn't feel like it was ever home in a larger sense, and I—I I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew what I didn't want, and I didn't want to be living there. I didn't—I um, didn't want to be having that sort of, you know, environmental influence uh, in terms of culture, in terms of location, weather, and it was just. I I wanted to be somewhere different, and I I had a feeling that that was going to be somewhere east. But I had my heart set on living in San Francisco from you know my earliest memories, which never happened. Actually, um, I I was very very interested in science and medicine and uh, public health and. Uh, you know, medical narratives from a really early age. So I spent every summer volunteering at hospitals and volunteering with different sorts of medically related organizations. And one of my most formative times was as summer where I volunteered as a patient transporter. And my, my Spot was assisting the morgue transporter. So anytime that anyone was dying or had died at the hospital, uh, the 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 employee, the morgue transportation employee, and I would show up with the special gurney, and we would wait until the doctors had released the body, and we would take the body from. That, you know, either the trauma room or the ICU or, you know, any other parts of the hospital that you can imagine someone would die in, um, the emergency department uh, and surgical recovery. And there was a whole separate back uh, channel of elevators and corridors that were specifically for transportation of the dead. and. It was, I know it sounds really morbid, but it was one of my absolute favorite experiences being able to be a part of that because I felt like it was, it was like, like giving them a dignified processional. And I was able to be alone with someone's whole history that was in that body and think about them, recognize them, meditate on them and hand them off to their next step. Then the next piece of their end of life proceeding. And it was, it felt like it was a really crucial, important job. And I, I, I had the sense from there that I always wanted to go into, um, some form of medicine or you know end of life care, and um for a long time, I wanted to be a forensic pathologist or a uh, a, a medical examiner and I was premed on and off for several years in college <laughs> without much success so it it really became this this foundation of narrative medicine and medicine as a Cultural schema rather than a you know, set of scientific uh, principles really became the rooting point of my personal interests and in my you know, future career. Mm. Wow.
2: So I wonder when you are confronted with uh, human mortality at such an early age, what decisions did you make about how you were going to live your life based on that?
1: Um I it I don't think that I fully recognized the the in-between that I was I was very interested and very fixated on the end of life idea and the end of life experience for lack of a better word. And it it almost it almost impressed upon me this sense of fearlessness that i didn't fully realize until i look back on it and i think wow you know i i i made so many leaps of faith because to me there was no reason not to there was no concern or fear it was you know hold your breath and jump and that was and, and it was okay to do that like things would work out because that's just, you know, life puts in place those structures for things to work out the way life is going to work out. And you just find them. <laughs> it, uh, moving from Arizona to Ohio for college was one of the strangest experiences for me because it was so Deeply uncomfortable. I had never been that far away from home, particularly not for that length of time and on my own as an eighteen-year-old. And so i I was so uncomfortable all of the time, and so out of my element. So culturally, you know, geographically, you know, at at uh, our college, it was very rural, very remote, and so it was. And it took about an hour to even get to the airport. And sometimes flying back and forth from Phoenix to Columbus, it's a a long flight that gets delayed. And I didn't have a car and I really didn't know that many people there that I was comfortable asking for rides. So I would get into the airport sometimes at two or three in the morning at just find, kind of just hitchhike, just like find someone to drive me (laughs) part of the way that I was going and just drop me off and, and hope for the best. And now when I tell my mother those stories, she's so horrified because that's, you know, pretty not standard. It's, It's not really something that is Widely accepted this day and age, but even in like 20, you know, 2003, 2004, it was, it was not a very common practice. But to me, it was a means to an end. I had a problem that solved my problem. I was willing to take the risk and I did it. And that, that felt fundamental to a lot of different steps that I took subsequently, just being able to, sit with my discomfort and still move forward.
2: Hmm. Wow. So, you know, you mentioned this idea of leaps of faith and I wonder why (laughs) you think other people don't uh, have this capacity to take leaps of faith. Like why is it that people just don't believe the net will appear if they leap or they just live in this like
1: constant fear that things could go wrong? I don't know. I don't I don't know because I don't want to I, I don't want to discount others processes in in that way. That I I certainly have a tendency to wrestle with my sense of needing to control the situation. And it's only when I completely let go of that idea of control that I feel like I can just fly. I I can, those wings will appear. And there's this level of control in different aspects that, that we, we as different individuals feel the need to hold on to. And that's, that's unique to each one of us that, that it's, and it's, and it's such a nuanced multi-dimensional piece that I, I don't necessarily want to put those words in someone else's mouth because I don't feel like I'm necessarily doing that better than someone else. I'm just doing it differently.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think it's really interesting. You brought up the idea of control because, um, I think so, for so much of our lives, control is a complete illusion. Both control and security are, right? to me, <laughs> two of the greatest illusions of all. Yeah, you know, one of my friends said he said he said I was having a friend a chat with my friend. He said, "You know what?" He said, I, "I'm convinced." He said, "Security is an illusion." and you you kind of look back over the last decade and you think about the fact that you know companies that have been around for hundreds of years have gone out of business people who thought they had jobs for the rest of their lives have seen their you know 401k's vanish and you think to yourself yeah there's no way that security is not illusion and yet you know this idea of control like we don't really like the idea that we're not in control of everything that happens to us i mean it, it's funny because i think there's this sort of paradox of you know, self-health efforts in which you're trying to take control of your life. And at the same time, you have to be willing to let go of control. So how do you balance those two things or how do you specifically do that?
1: Well, I, I don't think that I do. I think that <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's, there's balance, balance is kind of an illusion. Balance is like this dynamic force that there's, what is balance in one moment in time is not going to be balance in that next moment and balances this ever changing force. So like I, after my son was born, I started doing a lot of yoga because I was, I was having a lot of postpartum issues. I had a ton of joint and bone and back pain between, you know, carrying a big baby, having um, you know some late, you know, latent pregnancy challenges. Um, I developed really severe plantar fasciitis because of the ligament changes and, um, postpartum, I developed this really horrific mid back pain that would just spasm. And so I, I started trying to do yoga as a way to, if not loosen my joints and stretch out my body, find a way to sit with what felt like my new normal. And one of the yoga teachers that I, uh, met through this process said to me, you know, I was really, really struggling finding balance, finding, finding my footing in a pose and kept falling over. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And then then the, the teacher looked at me, he goes, well, you are doing it. Balance is ever changing. When you're falling over, you're finding a new balance, and that is teaching you as much as when you are finding your footing in the pose successfully. Like, that's those are both forms of balance, and neither is a better form than the other. Each one is providing you with information on even on a cellular and a neurological level. Your body is learning, and your mind is understanding something because of those
2: shifts. Yeah. So, you know, inevitably uh, and we're using yoga as a metaphor for this, but at some point we're going to all fall, right? Mm-hmm. That's just kind of the thing. And I, I still remember that quote from Friday night lights from the very first episode where you have that monologue by, by Kyle Chandler, like he's talking about the fact that, you know, at some point uh, in our, all of our lives will fall and will be tested. Right. And uh, I think that, you know, what I wonder uh, particularly, yeah, I think this will make a perfect segue to what you're, you're actually going through um, is how you end up uh, coming out of those moments, uh, not necessarily being defined or uh, limited by them, but informed by them and growing from them.
1: I, it, it really, uh, again, with the, the idea of falling, I've, I've, I've recognized very recently in my life that we utilize so many binary descriptors to to define points in our lives and that is so limiting because what is falling like like what is the act of falling it's a movement it's a movement it's a, for going from point a to point b and it has this idea of this negative connotation that falling is is bad or it's hard and that's you know that may be true but falling is a catalyst for grounding oneself for finding a place where you are collecting yourself and moving back up or moving forward or moving to a place that is different, that again has found more information than where you had. And, and I, I in my life, recently, especially, I, I try so um, intent, you know, with so much intent, intentionality to move away from utilizing those kind of binary metaphors for, our experiences, even when I'm talking to my little, my son about the idea of gender and consent and, you know, how these things are not, um, you know, how these things can be nuanced across a lot of different, you know, pieces of language and pieces of understanding of other humans.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow. so let's talk about what you called uh the other child
1: yes um, yes my other child my red-headed stepchild i do not like this child i love my son <laughs> this child not so fond of
2: <laughs> so tell me the, about the moment that you found out
1: well Going back to what I was saying about all of my postpartum challenges, I, at about six weeks postpartum, I was experiencing very severe back pain, like on a scale five or six out of 10, um, where it sometimes would be spasming to the point that I would be debilitated. And I also had an infant. I was a brand new mother. um, And, my husband didn't have any sort of paternity leave from work, and he has a very demanding job that you know requires a significant amount of overseas travel. So we didn't have local family. Um, he was back at work after four days and traveling to China at three weeks, and I had left my job as an elder law attorney in the city so that I could stay home with our son because of this you know, these, these scheduling constraints and challenges. And I was very fortunate to have a job that I was, it was very, very easy for me to step back into in a lot of different flexible ways at any point, but it made sense primarily for childcare purposes to have someone staying home. And it, you know, it ended up being me. And I was, fairly happy with that decision. I was looking forward to it. And it was extremely hard. And I was not a good stay at home parent. I was not something that, you know, I realized early on, this was not something that I was cut out to do in a lot of ways. But I digress. I I had all this, I mean, a part of it, I think was, I had so much pain. And this back pain was very localized, very intense, very persistent. I, uh, and it would travel to my hips and then, you know, very debilitating. And I saw a number of doctors, I saw a postpartum spine specialist who sent me to physical therapy, the physical therapies therapist said, okay, well, your hips are weak. You, you know, you gave birth, you have a little bit of birth trauma, uh, you know, go home and do these exercises. And I, It ended up being this kind of confluence of all of the pieces that we bitch about and that are wrong with our healthcare system coming to a head because I had these doctors that weren't looking at me in a holistic way, that were reticent to order tests because of insurance. I was reticent to go back to because of childcare and because of co-pays and insurance costs and we were living on one salary. And so, you know, money was very tight and, you know, childcare was very difficult with a, you know, a nursing infant that, um, you know, I couldn't really take to the appointment and then be able to focus to the appointment. So I went to a couple of physical therapists. I went to a podiatrist to see if the foot thing was related. I went to, you know, I ended up being five different specialists over the course of two years And no one could pinpoint why I was still having so much pain. And I was getting written off in the classic new mom sense. Well, you're a new mom. You gave birth. Your body's different. You're breastfeeding. You're carrying around extra weight. You're probably not eating as well as you could or should. You're not exercising. You're not sleeping enough because my little boy was a, you know, a terrible sleeper for his first year, like just woke up, you know, five, six times a night, every night, no matter how much we tried to sleep train or, uh, you know, give him tools to self-soothe. He just didn't want to sleep. He just wanted to, you know, nurse and be on me. And so I was chronically exhausted and all of those things I think played a part, but none of them were a were an answer. None of them were an answer that I was satisfied with. And as things got worse, I, I had this feeling in the back of my mind that like something is very, very wrong. Something is very wrong with my body. And I don't know what it is, and it's very frightening. And I don't feel like I have the answers. I can't connect these dots. Um, so we had... After, when my, right before my son turned two, we moved out of the city. We were in a one-bedroom apartment and moved up to northern Westchester where we had purchased our first house. So we're finally, we're in this house, we're getting settled. Um, we finally have a car and we have a little bit more flexibility to make appointments, to get to, get to doctors. Um, we had a lot of family visiting, so I had a little bit more childcare help. And we're much closer to my husband's office as well. So that was, you know, played a big part in it. And I went to my primary care doctor. And at that point we had, over the summer, we had been talking about trying to have a second baby. And we had been actively trying, despite my health questions, because we couldn't answer them. We just figured, well, we'll have a baby and then we'll be done. Then that will be a time to address them once and for all, because we We wanted to, we were, you know, feeling very much like, okay, we want to, you know, get on with that. And so I went to my primary care doctor and I was talking to her and I said, oh, we're trying to get pregnant and we've been trying for a few months and it's not working. And she goes, ah, you know, I, I'm really concerned about a lot of these, um, a lot of the, the symptoms that you're having. And I'm wondering if it could be an autoimmune response. Your blood work looks a little weird, uh, but we, you know, it's not telling us anything. It's just telling us that, you know, there's some sort of like inflammatory response going on or, you know, immune response going on. And so she did a full body exam, which included a breast exam and found a very large, but very, very, Deep and difficult to locate breast lump, and was flagged it. She's like, I don't know what it is. It, it's hard to kind of feel out. You just stopped breastfeeding. Uh, your body's gone through a lot of changes. But you know, you and I are both diligent individuals. Get this checked out. So three days after my son turned two, my we the three of us packed into the car and we drove to the hospital for a routine breast ultrasound. This was a test was scheduled at 8 a.m. And that timeline is important. We got there, we got in about 8.15 for the ultrasound and very quickly into the ultrasound, the tech stops and is very quiet. And, you know, I, I was starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I, so I kind of said very, Glibly, uh, next time I have one of these, I'm hoping I'm seeing a baby. And she kind of looked at me and she was just like, I don't think that's going (laughs) to happen. Like, Oh, well, (laughs) let's save this conversation for another time. And so she calls in the radiologist. The radiologist said, I don't like the way this looks, which was apparently her key phrase that tells us nothing. And Orders a mammogram immediately, like not come back in a week, like go to the next room. We're doing this right now. And I walk in, and it was literally hop off the table, go around the corner, and get the mammogram. And this was about nine o'clock. Um, so I go get the mammogram, and I immediately, you know, the tech doesn't really know, you know, why I had just been sent in. So she's chatting with me and she's like, oh, you know, these are routine. And as she's chatting, she goes, oh, you know, these are routine. Well, and, you know, breast cancer is really treatable these days. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Record scratch. Like, what? Breast cancer? Okay, it's really treatable, but like, you're not talking about me because. That's not what's happening, and she's like, well i'm going to go get the radiologist i'm going to let you have a seat in her office. All of this is starting to sink in and dawn on me that this appointment is going in a very very different direction than I expected, and something has gone so far off the rails at at some point and it was this this gradual recognition that this was pivotal in our family's life, and that things would never be the same? Things were going to be very different after this appointment. So now it's about 930, 10 o'clock. The radiologist comes in. She goes, "Do you have anyone here with you?" I said, uh, "My husband and my son." And she said, "Bring them in. The nurse will watch your son." I go. I said. Why? What do what you? What is? What did? What do you need to talk to me about? She said, uh, "Bring your husband in." I don't like the way these these films look. I'm like point blank, like I, I'm a pretty blunt person. I'm like, "What do you mean you don't look like the way they look? Like, what is that telling me? Is it cancer?" And she looks at me just like dead in the eyes and says, "Yes, I would say it's ninety eight percent chance it's breast cancer." I go. Oh, so why did you say you don't like the way they look? Why didn't you just say it's cancer? And I just blew up and started sobbing and went just like head exploding emoji. Go grab my husband. I'm in the waiting room. I'm sobbing. I pull him in. The nurse takes Felix. He comes in. I sit down and just start sobbing. And I said, radiologist tells me I have breast cancer. He goes, What? And, and we both just started crying and the radiologist was just, you know, talking and it was just like white noise. And we we uh we couldn't really perceive the gravity of what that meant, the intensity of that diagnosis. And I I find it very frustrating when we as a culture talk about breast cancer awareness because breast cancer awareness doesn't really capture what we need to be aware of. Breast cancer awareness wants us to think that breast cancer is this disease. It's out there. People get it, but it's okay. It's pink. It's warrior survivor battle mode. Breast cancer awareness doesn't tell you the experience of a 32-year-old being told that she has cancer. It doesn't tell you the implications of that. It doesn't tell you that that woman would never be able to have children again. It doesn't tell you that after a breast cancer diagnosis, one in three diagnosed women will go on to metastasize. And once that happens, there is a 18 to 36 month window where their lives are on the clock, where that, that's the life expectancy. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm hitting that 18-month mark. And it, it it doesn't capture the sense of devastation where everything that you had come to understand and had Thought was real and true and safe in your mind is shattered. That any sort of balance or steadiness or or rooting in your life is an illusion. And that that was our experience that day. Wow. Um,
2: so I wonder, you know, knowing that you're being confronted with your own mortality at this point, um, what has been the impact, uh, on the relationships with the people in your life, but particularly how do you even, you know, deal with that when you've got a son who probably doesn't even, isn't even old enough to really understand the gravity of what's going on. Uh, because I I can't help, but think about, you know, the Paul Calanthe's book, when breath becomes air, right. Yeah. and that moment you realize like, wait a minute, his daughter isn't even un- born yet. She's never, and I think, I think he died before she was born. If I remember.
1: Correctly. She was, she was very, she was like eight months old. She was, so she, okay. you know, no, you know, she's not going to have any sort of concrete memories. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, so I wonder, you know, what has been the impact on, uh, you know, the relationship you have with your own son and of course everybody else in your life.
1: Well, it's, it's funny because, I I shifted into this mindset, and it was very quick, I think. It was much faster than I expected. That metastatic motherhood is kind of this heightened sense of wanting normalcy and wanting routine and wanting structure and wanting those small pieces of motherhood that... No, we don't necessarily take for granted, but that we were nostalgic for. I, I feel a lot of nostalgia for both the moments that I had when I was, before I was diagnosed, where I was having this this back pain and this, you know, I was just, I was unable to properly enjoy early motherhood and those those very raw new pieces of it because I had so much that was already being taken from me. And I have a lot of nostalgia for the large pieces of my son's life that I'm probably not going to see. And it manifests, I I like to think of it, I, I kind of call it this, you know, Icarus parenting because I want to do everything with him but I also want to keep our routines and so I end up being like well we're going to go to the zoo for 8 hours and then I inevitably do too much and I'm too exhausted and I fly too close to the sun and I'm and then I'm I'm laid up for a day or two because I just don't have the energy and the stamina to do those kinds of things and so there's this this tempering of what needs to happen, what you know could happen, and what I know that I'm missing even now, because I don't have the capabilities to do everything that I think that I could or that I want to, and after I was diagnosed after that first interaction with the with the radiologist, I had gone on to have a biopsy, it confirmed my breast cancer, and as I mentioned it's Um, I'm unable to have any more children, uh, because my breast cancer is, uh, considered endocrine sensitive. So it's, it's driven by estrogen, uh, the estrogen levels in my body. So the first course of treatment was to remove all estrogen producing substances or bodies in, uh, you know, in my system. So I had a total hysterectomy. I was placed immediately into chemical menopause, and then later surgical menopause. And I sought out a second opinion that was a much better clinician than the first group of doctors that I saw. And they recognized that my back pain and, you know, the the pain and symptoms that I was having were not unrelated. And they immediately ordered a, a PET scan, which is a scan that, um, that picks up on, uh, metabolic activity in your bones and soft tissues. And that increased metabolic activity is generally considered indicative of, uh, tumor cells. And so I was discovered that I had extensive bone lesions. So bone, you know, t- breast cancer tumors that had metastasized to my bones in my skull, in my, almost every vertebra in my spine, in my sternum, my clavicle, my, uh, shoulder bones, my hip bones, my femurs, my, uh, uh, um, iliac bones and my ribs. And so that was, you know, I was like, I, you know, it was physically debilitating, but it was, that was the answer. That was why I was having so much pain is that I had, I had, you know, I literally had been living with a small spinal fracture for two years and, and, um, and a fractured rib that were a result of these lesions that had significantly weakened my bone structure. And, you know, who knew? So it's, it's, it has given me pause to Start to understand what my new balance is, what my balance, the balance that I am having to find in my life. And that is a lot of times just falling and getting back up and regrouping and finding new situations that create a better structure for our whole family. And it's very humbling because it means that there are a lot of things that I don't get to do. I don't necessarily get to go to the park with my son and my husband on the weekends, because on Saturdays, I need to sleep, you know, 10 to 12 hours, I need to really catch up on that rest and get up and and take care of myself and take care of my body. And I miss out on that time. And there's, uh, you know, there's, there are not many good ways to mitigate those. There's, there's so much more than I need to be doing that I have the time and the resources to do. And that's, that's a very hard pill to swallow. And I swallow a lot of pills yeah. every day and I can, I can attest to that one.
2: So for your husband, uh, what is the experience like for him? I mean, is he, cause to me that, I mean, I, I guess like I would think to myself, if I were in that situation, wow, I'm going to have to raise <laughs> this kid potentially. What is life going to be like after that?
1: Oh yeah, no, that's, that's pretty much it. Like he's a wreck. Um, I mean, it's, it's not good. Uh, he, he, he and I have found this, this sort of unintentional, but, you know, very effective sense of trading off where one of us seems to be freaking out at a time, but not (laughs) Really both of us. And, and we don't, we, we've never really done it consciously. It's just that it tends to be how our, how our partnership has evolved. And we don't really even think about it, it anymore. But like recently we discovered that I, my cancer had spread from my bones to my brain. Uh, we got that news while Christian was in China <laughs> and I got the call from my oncologist, um, you know, late at night, I immediately call him and I am sobbing. I have, I am, you know, feel like I am staring death in the face and I call him. I'm like, "Uh, oh, bad news. I have uh, a couple of brain tumors. They, uh, need to deal with. So do you want to come home? <laughs> like, and, and, by the time I got off the phone with him, I had you know more or less composed myself because I was you know solo parenting for the rest of the week and <laughs> needed to get it together. And he was trying to get home and more or less kind of out of most of, most lines of communication for about 24 hours and He is just sitting at the airport, he's missed flights, you know, there were timing issues. So he, he ended up taking four different flights from, you know, Southern province to South Korea to Hong Kong, you know, to the US and is sitting on a plane thinking about his wife's brain tumor and having no one to talk to about it. So he's just Googling. I, I have a rule where I don't Google unless there is a specific Thing I'm looking for. I don't Google life expectancy to statistics. I don't I don't Google I don't Google that stuff. I, I can't anymore. Uh that 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 road leads to dragons. And so, but that's what he did. And so he's basically freaking out to everyone he can talk to and being like, Emily's probably gonna die this year. Oh my god, what's gonna happen? Like, and he comes home and he is just like a Tasmanian devil like tornado of grief and of worry and sadness and all of those really, really difficult emotions, and he comes home and I'm like, All right, we're good, we're gonna do this. we're gonna get this taken care of. I got it, and he needed to have his time to grieve and to process the news and i I needed to give him that time, and so we just kind of found that you know found found that trade-off where he was able to he was able to find the really uncomfortable questions and feelings and talk to me about them and I was able to be his partner for it, where he was you know saying things talking to me like i I don't really want to start dating. Don't want to have to start dating again. Like I, that terrifies me. I was like, I'm, I'm someone who is an inveterate planner. I mean, I, I literally have three different organizers for different facets of our life. I have my personal planner, our family planner, and then I have a business planner and, and then my, my phone calendar and, organizational apps. And so that's, that's how I find the illusion of control is by planning and making lists. And so I have this running document on my computer that is all of my end of life wishes, all of this, you know, this this conglomeration of resources for Felix, for Christian, you know, resources for, you know, young widows and widowers at, you know, Dating organizations for young widows and widowers, and you know, information for him that I know he's gonna struggle to find, but like finding that information is my wheelhouse. And that's my that is one of the biggest things I've always brought to the table in our marriage, in our partnership, is that I can call enormous amounts of information and narrow it down to a, a handful of things, hand them over to him and say, here's, you know, here's the curated list, do with it what you need. And that's, that has worked enormously well for us. I'm like, well, why would that stop when I'm dead? I'm just going to do it ahead of time and, uh, you know, make it available for him because that's, that's something I can do right now. So I have a Google doc with a lot of, um, a lot of those resources, other, you know, contact info for other men that I've reached out to, to talk to and kind of vet to say, Hey, you know, when I eventually die, you've gone through this, like you, you've lost a wife to breast cancer and have young kids. Um, can you talk to my husband? Can you kind of be willing to kind of mentor my husband through this grief? I've, I've you know, interviewed a few end-of-life doulas, as, you know, individuals that can come into our house and not be a person in mourning and be able to orchestrate our family's end-of-life and post-death wishes in a way that is graceful instead of having, you know, having those tensions run so high because everyone is so emotionally fraught and you know have have a plan for Felix if you know depending on how old Felix is when i die like being able to say well it's you know it may not be age appropriate so here's something that he can do that is going to allow him to experience this situation without it being traumatic for him and here are resources for him subsequently that will help them process and adjust and you know, sending, writing emails, creating a, a an, an email account for letters and pictures I can send to them that they'll have access to, and writing greeting cards and journals and um, you know, I don't really sleep like ever. So wow,
2: wow. Um, I can see why Sarah referred you now. This been- <laughs> Before I ask my last question, uh, is there anything on that wish list that our audience could give to you?
1: Ah I, you know, so I am I'm in the process of starting a nonprofit. It's called the Metastatic Parenthood Project. And it is an organization that will be able to provide care management and assistance and community and advocacy and resources for families with young children who are living with end stage or metastatic cancer. So one of the caregivers has had a, you know, a metastatic diagnosis, such as my own, their diagnosis and has young children, you know, young school age, under five. I just, I feel like I have had to put in a lot of legwork for finding resources, grants, support systems you know, triaging how to find childcare, how to update our wills. Do we have the proper advanced directives? What, you know, what is an end of life doula? And is that something I want? And is that something we can afford? And uh, organizing these post death resources. And what are my end of life wishes? And categorizing all of those things. I don't want families in that situation to have to reinvent the wheel. And so I am making it so they don't have to. So I am compiling this, you know, this resource hub where people can find that guiding hand because they're not alone in it. And so I ask for resources and community and, you know information if you know of a local cancer organization or a cancer center that is providing good information or doing good work with families send it to me give me that information and i am holding on to it and organizing it in a way that can be easily accessed and utilized and i'm i'm hoping to be up and running by the end of 2019 we're in the process of finishing up our tax designation. And then, you know, then we're gathering funding and and getting going. And, um, so I, I want to be able to leave that legacy for other families who are going through the unthinkable to say like, you know, you're not alone in this. You're not alone. You never have to be alone. And that you don't have to drown. Let us give you that gift of time with your family so that you're not stressed about the logistics and let us make this transition and this, this period of grief and of love and of, you know, horror and terror and also, you know, understanding and grappling with really, really difficult, uh, life changes and, you know, limitations, let us give you a little bit more, uh, peace of mind and love on you a little bit so that you can have that energy for the things that matter. Hmm. Wow.
2: Wow. Um, well, I have one last question for you which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody hear something unmistakable?
1: It's their willingness to to go back to what we were saying at the very very beginning, that willingness to leap. That willingness to say that that fear comes from the same illusion as balance and that, that grappling for balance is grappling for fear and in willing to accept the lack of balance creates an unmistakable fear, fearlessness that, that knowing that there is no balance and yet balance in everything at the same time is, is so empowering. It, It gives you this, this this freedom, this nothingness, to where you are falling, but you're actually flying.
2: Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been amazing.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I feel, I feel honored to be here. I'm glad that I'm you know, well enough to be here. Finally. (laughs) I mean, ironically, the day after brain radiation, I'm like up and going, but I'm also propped up on a lot of meds. So, but (laughs) thank you so much for having me.
2: My pleasure. And where can people find out more about your work and everything that you're up to?
1: Well, I can be found on my website, uh, emilyrgarnett.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-R-G-A-R-N-E-T-T.com that hosts my blog called Beyond the Pink Ribbon, which talks in detail about my breast cancer diagnosis, steps and treatment, and serves as an advocacy, education, and community platform for people living with breast cancer, in particular metastatic breast cancer. I can also be found, um, I have a podcast called The Intersection of Cancer and Life, which can be found most places where podcasts are distributed and the website for that is the intersection of cancer and lifecom Matt talks about life after a cancer diagnosis so what uh, in a candid way in which cancer has uh, not taken over your life or you know defined you but you know changed the way changed parts of the way you live your life and who you are. And it's a very candid look beyond this idea of a, a story of someone's diagnosis to what are what is the now. I can also be found on Facebook at Beyond the Pink Ribbon blog, on Instagram at Beyond the Pink Ribbon, and on Twitter at EMR Garnett. Or you can email me at Beyond the Pink Ribbon at gmail.com. And please send me your resources. I love getting information about organizations that are doing excellent inspiring things and organizations that are really uh, developing new truths about ways that we can gather our community and gather our strengths to uh, you know d- to find resonance for individuals and families that need it.
2: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.